you know, you are going to have to be defending people um, sometimes publicly for saying stuff that you find abhorrent and that you hate. But that's the gig. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, and this is The Syllabus. Everybody loves free speech up to a point. It always sounds good in theory, but it's amazing how many people lack the integrity or breadth of vision to support the principle of free speech when it's being invoked to protect speech they don't like. In that vein, it has been especially interesting in the past decade or so to see the American Civil Liberties Union, once a defender of free speech for everyone, retreat from that old position. To quote a 2021 New York Times article describing the scene at an ACLU conference, quote, a law professor argued that the free speech rights of the far right were not worthy of defense by the ACLU and that black people experienced offensive speech far more viscerally than white allies. In the hallway outside, an ACLU official argued it was perfectly legitimate for his lawyers to decline to defend hate speech, unquote. Given the ACLU's new squishiness, or one might just say misgivings, about free speech, it has been intriguing to see the rising importance of FIRE, once known as the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, recently rebranded the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. Its lawyers are as willing to defend far-right speech as far-left, and they've been just as willing to speak up in defense of pro-Palestinian campus protesters whose speech has been curtailed, as, say, pro-life or anti-affirmative action speakers who have been deplatformed on campuses. This recent history is why I was so excited to talk to Alex Mori. She is the Director of Campus Rights Advocacy at FIRE. She is a lawyer and she is a true free speech, would you say purist, a free speech romantic? Would you say someone with free speech integrity? She's a rarity and she finds herself often talking to students who don't even remember or don't know that just 25 or 30 years ago, it was expected that on campuses, everyone could say pretty close to everything. In that day before more restrictive speech codes, before trigger warnings, before the idea of safe spaces, there was an expectation that free speech was kind of rowdy. That seems like ancient history now, and therefore people like Alex Mori seem a bit out of time. They seem a bit like ancient history themselves, but she's not. And she was here, and she talked to me on The Syllabus. Alex Mori, welcome to The Syllabus. Thanks so much for having me. Tell us, what do you do for a living? I am the Director of Campus Rights Advocacy at FIRE. Uh, we are basically a free speech nonprofit. We, for many years, we worked only on campus speech issues, and we've since expanded off campus. I don't know if you've been paying attention, but there are lots of controversies around speech uh, on campus and off I uh, pay attention mostly to the ones on campus these days, and boy, there's a lot to pay attention to. I sometimes have conversation with friends in which we're talking about the free speech landscape, and somebody will say, FIRE does the thing that the ACLU used to do, but then lost interest in. Is that an accurate way to describe what's going on? Well, you know, we have tried to do the free speech thing in the most principled, consistent uh, way possible, you know, and we sure love when the ACLU does free speech stuff too. We love when any nonprofit org in the space does free speech stuff. But I mean, we really do try to defend everybody without regard to whether what it is they're saying is popular or not. And I would say broadly, 
that's not been a very popular thing in recent years. But am I right that the American Civil Liberties Union used to be an organization that would say, look, we will defend you if you're a Nazi, if you're a communist, if you're a white supremacist, if you're this, if you're that. If you are exercising your American right to free speech in a space where you're allowed to do that, we're going to defend you. And that seems not to be where they are anymore, that that now they don't want to defend people who are unpopular and they tend to be a little bit more concerned with the potential or so-called harms of free speech, and so a little less likely to step up and defend them. Is that is that fair? I mean, I think that strikes me as 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 pretty fair. Um, you know, the ACLU. Um, you know, I've I've been on panels with folks at the ACLU, and they'll say, you know, we we care about a lot of different things, not just free speech. And Fires thing has been free speech from day one, uh, just free speech and sort of issues surrounding. We follow the law. We follow free speech best practices because we have seen what it looks like when people start cracking down on expression, whether super offensive or just a little offensive or a little bit hateful, quote unquote. Um, You know, there's no fair way to, to do that. You know, the Supreme Court has said that People in char- in positions of power just cannot pick and choose what speech should be protected in a principled way. And so that's what the First Amendment stands for, that we really need this wide open, robust level of discourse. Um, and that means, you know, that freedom comes at a cost, which is having to tolerate views that we don't like being out there in the marketplace of ideas. I recently interviewed Danielle Hawley, the president of Mount Holyoke College, and we talked about what it was like 25 years ago when she and I were in college together, as it happens. We went to the same undergraduate school and we talked about how robust free speech was and how sometimes that was a little bit uncomfortable, but ultimately it was basically a good thing. And I was saying to her now that I think that it would be great if university or college presidents just told all of the parents and all the alumni, look, we're a free speech zone. It's very simple. We have integrity around this one issue. It's not pro-right wing. It's not pro-left wing. It's not this. It's not that. It's just people get to say stuff and that's who we are. And if you have a problem with it, go to another school. And she said something to the effect of, oh my God, that would never fly today. Nobody wants that. Um, Everyone wants me to crack down on speech from one side or another. I want you to explain what's happened. If we accept that there's some truth there, that that in the past 25 years or so, the discourse around free speech has simply shifted. There are just far fewer people on the left or the right who are enthusiastic about it, who have what you might call a romance with it, that it's this great thing we have in this country and that we have to protect it no matter the cost. That's not really how a lot of people think anymore or not as many people think. Can you tell me, starting at whatever point you want, why that is. Where where did it start to atrophy? And how did we get to the point today where everyone is just calling for banning this campus group or banning this speech or firing this professor? What happened to free speech over the past, say, quarter century? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I mean, if I had a if I had the exact answer for you, my life would be so much easier because then we could, you know, start focusing on that particular thing. It seems to be a bit of a tapestry of a number of different things that sort of work together that build upon each other. When we really started to notice that, you know, something's wrong here, something's changing. This is going from, you know, administrators sort of being the bad actor when there was a bad actor enforcing speech code saying, you know, students can't say X, Y, or Z to students asking for, you know, quote unquote, freedom from speech, saying, administrators, I'm hearing the speech that I don't like, protect me from this speech. 
it was about a decade ago, maybe a little more than a decade ago, 2013, 2014. That's when we started to see, you know, students are actually asking for speech suppression on campus. You know, this is a far cry from the Berkeley free speech movement and Kent State. All of a sudden I heard the shooting. And then I saw people dropping to the ground. Where we've got college students out there going, you know, administrators aren't going to tell me what to do. I'm an adult. I've got free speech and I can make things happen on my campus. There was this much more, you know, almost infantilized student body that was looking for a lot of protection and for administrators to act in loco parentis. Um, there has been you know, there's been research and people looking into these things, you know, what what changed about parenting styles, you know, there's been some discussion about, you know, was it that parents were, you know, have always sort of protected their kids, this generation of college students from these types of harms. And so when they get to school, it's only natural that they're looking for a snowplow parent to push all the difficulties out of their way up to and including speech. That might be um, at issue. And we definitely see that sort of mentality from a lot of students, not all of them. Um, there's also a lot of administrators who, you know, FIRE is a very, uh, we are a nonpartisan organization. We don't really take a stance on anything except free expression, but we certainly have seen a lot of diversity type initiatives, which again, we don't take a, a position on. They could be good, they could be bad, depending on what they look like. Um, but we've seen these types of initiatives, which I think are taken on with the best of intentions, with people being like, let's get hate off our campus. Let's get, you know, bullying off our campus, that sort of thing. But they're imposed and implemented both in policy and in principle in a way that really encroaches on student and faculty rights. And they are implemented by, you know, sometimes just one administrator who's then making the decision about, is this bullying? Is this speech quote unquote offensive? So again, we at FIRE are sort of in the, in the position of saying, look, we are seeing that this is being abused. If you want to do the DEI type stuff, okay, but it has to stop before it starts encroaching on other people's rights. And, and, you know, of course, the university sort of starts looking like something other than a university when people can't show up authentically and have these sorts of authentic discussions. But here we are. I'm curious who's driving all this, um, because I think in every circumstance in which the culture of a place changes, it's possible to look, and maybe you don't know with a perfect knowledge, but it's possible to make guesses about where it's coming from, about where it's coming from. So for example, some people will tell you this is about liability. Everyone's afraid of getting sued. And I'm often very skeptical. I think it's sometimes the perception of liability. But then if you say, well, what, what, what lawsuit are you afraid of? They can't really name it. There's just this sense that if there's maximal administrative oversight, there's somehow insulation against phantom lawsuits that people imagine come in the middle of the night. Um, sometimes it's, as you suggested, in some cases, it's students who want to be administered. And I think that's really, really important. Uh, someone once said to me, you know, back in the day, students wanted to be, um, wanted to be tough and today they want to be just that, that their self-conception used to be, we can handle stuff. We're grownups. And now it's our sense of justice requires constant administrative oversight. And we're not really tough enough to fight it out on our own. To drown you out that I hear to listen to you. It's not worth it to converse with you. When I was teaching at Yale, 
Someone told me in one department, the faculty are all afraid of the graduate students. It's the graduate students who drive everything. The graduate students who are very politicized and have a lot of time on their hands also have very active Twitter accounts and a lot of self-righteousness. And faculty are actually afraid of their own doctoral students calling them out for being insufficiently just, woke, progressive, whatever. When you look at a campus where free speech has really, really contracted and people are really afraid, who do you suspect is the driving force there? Is it lawyers? Is it DEI middle managers? Is it undergraduates? Is it graduate students? Where does the impetus to shrink the arena for free speech come from? Right now, it appears to be the students. I mean, there are definitely a variety of factors, you know, whether it's students, parents slash donors, uh, you know, people on Twitter, sometimes legislators that are exerting pressure on these schools to punish a faculty member for doing X or Y. Sometimes it's faculty member who are very typically, you know, one way politically that are exerting pressure and saying, you know, if other faculty are only you know, if, if they're not using this terminology or if they're not teaching this way, then that's insufficiently, uh, you know, that's insufficient for the pedagogy. There are all kinds of different things. But when we talk to, you know, folks on campus, the main narrative is like students are afraid of each other. Faculty are afraid of students and administrators are afraid of, uh, you know, are afraid of students telling them that they're not doing a good enough job, you know, protecting them from from speech they dislike. I hate to lump students into big categories, but what I hear from students is, you know, they're afraid to say controversial things in class because they're worried their fellow students will put them on blast on Twitter. Um, can we agree that if can we agree that social media is an absolute precondition for all of this that if it weren't that that the reason they're afraid is because it can be put on social media. Before social media, they weren't afraid of a rumor mill saying, did you hear that Alex Morey said something in you know, 19th century Southern fiction class because that was ridiculous. But now that it can go straight to Twitter or Facebook or Insta, they're terrified. And if we all got off social media, not that we're about to do that, but that would solve it, right? Social media has been incredibly difficult for campuses in the sense of you know, taking down what used to be four walls of the classroom. You know, I think in, you know, ancient Greece, it was like, let us go outside the city and we will have this academic discussion amongst this small group here and sort of, you know, later Chatham House rules where it's like everything we say in this group is is sort of sacred and we can bring up ideas. We can bring up maybe half-baked ideas that, uh, you know, we want to talk through without the level of risk that we have today, where it's like, you know, I mean, we see so many faculty get in trouble for bringing up hypothetical type things and asking their students to do these thought exercises. I just, I just had a thought. Things. Yeah, I just had a thought. Would it be acceptable given our free speech commitments? This wouldn't be a legal imposition, but could you, how would you feel about asking students and faculty to sign a compact that they would never talk about class on social media? So a voluntary, a voluntary rescission of their own free speech prerogatives in the interest of making the classroom feel freer. I just had that idea. Is that a good idea? 
Well, you know, that kind of reminds me of our, we have recently been asking college administrators and, and colleges uh, writ large, like, you know, you should adopt the Calvin Report on institutional neutrality, where you don't take political and social positions as an institution, so as to make the free speech climate more habitable for everybody else, so they feel like they can take positions. You know, that took us a while as a free speech org to be like, should we be telling colleges and universities that they can't say something? The free speech people are saying we can't say something, but, you know, that is definitely something that could be interesting. You know, in furtherance of free speech, we are showing up in this classroom, uh, seeing each other with the best of intentions and understanding that people are going to come to the table, maybe with ideas that we disagree with or find offensive. Um, but we're going to, you know, keep it within the four walls of the classroom to reasonable effect, you know, if somebody's harassing you, you know, they're meeting the, the legal definition of harassment in the classroom, obviously we wouldn't say keep it in the class, but yeah, like not trashing each other on social media or, um, you know, even giving faculty members the benefit of the doubt, you know, when some faculty member says something in class that a student runs to the dean and says like, this was, you know, a violent discussion in class because they raised the issue of, I don't know, rape law in a relevant law school class, uh, you know, just going to speak to the faculty member first before invoking the disciplinary process, all that kind of stuff. Um, what I would consider, you know, common sense, incremental, seeing fellow faculty and students who might have views you disagree with in if not the most charitable way, then even a sort of charitable way, like that would solve a lot of problems if people just gave each other like the slightest bit of benefit of a doubt. But I mean, students have this like, they're looking for injustice. Like you said, right. they want to be just. And so they've got these like, where's the injustice so that I can spring into action. But I mean, at that point, clearly part of the problem is that there are administrators who are designed to respond to it, right? If there if there were no administrative office that said, come tell us about injustices or here's how to file a grievance about an injustice, there'd be far fewer reports of injustices. Maybe that would be a problem for the probably for, you know, for the rare occasions when there are these injustices. But it certainly, you know, it would swing things in the other direction. But here's my question. What should a campus free speech regime look like? If you, if let's say that a university comes to you and says, okay, we've totally lost the narrative. We suck at this. Everyone is filing grievances against everyone. Everyone is, is, uh, is afraid all the time. Uh, we have, we keep adding on bureaucrats to try to solve this assistant deans. It's not getting any better. It's actually getting worse. We want a reset. We want to design a free speech regime from the ground up. Maybe that means there is none. Maybe it means we don't have a rule on it or we have a rule and want to know what that rule should look like. We want to know should there be grievance procedures? And if so, what should they look like? Or should there not be any at all? What do you advise them? You're called in as a consultant for what a campus should look like with regard to free speech. What does it look like? Sure. And I want to speak to all the college administrators and presidents and boards of trustees right now out there in the universe. We offer this if you want <laughs> to know. Well, and free. free for free. Oh, wow. Free for consulting. Free. For free. Okay. We, we will craft something from scratch for you. We will redline your current policies. We will, you know, hold your hand to free speech nirvana. We will take you there. Uh, just ask for free. Um, so what colleges and universities need are speech protective policies, and then they need to practice uh, free speech, which means implementing their policies as written, you know, in a in a fair way. And then they also need to work on their free speech climate, which is sort of a 
mentality around free expression. So where we see things go wrong right now in terms of policy, we'll go one, two, three. Policies are written... Um, so usually schools have these great overarching standards, like our mission is free inquiry and we love free speech. Uh, then you get further into the bowels of the policy manuals, and there are all these other contradictory policies that uh, you know are written by sort of not the same people that wrote the first one <laughs> that wrote the free speech promises, but you know discriminatory harassment policies that are overly broad and they purport to punish free speech. Uh, IT policies that ban stuff like offensive emails or jokes, you know, these sort of vague overbroad policies that, uh, you know, you go, okay, well, what is offensive speech? How is that defined? It's defined nowhere. So then we get to the practice where someone has been accused of offensive speech under policy XYZ. And now we've got this administrator attempting to put that policy into practice and implement it. Well, was it offensive? Sometimes it comes down to what that personal, what that administrator personally thinks. And usually those people kind of, you know, typically the college administrator today sort of leans left. And so we often see right leaning, but not always speech um, curbed under many of these policies. Um, and then the mindset and free speech culture aspect is so important because it sort of informs the others, right? Like, so many of these administrators are sort of like a hammer in search of a nail. And again, this is like why we, we can't, we can't say it's just one thing. So like there've been so there's been this administrative bureaucratic boom on campuses over the last decade or two, where it's like some of these people's job is to like encourage students to report quote unquote bias or hate or when they felt bad or whatever. And then that person has to jump into action and, and, and act and do something. And so they need, they need somebody to punish. And again, a lot of these things are done in with the best of intentions. There were so many years. So, where, okay. Know, so women, is, yeah, go ahead. No, finish what you're saying. I was going to say there have been, so, you know, there were many years where it's like, you know, women reporting sexual harassment on campus or, uh, you know, dating violence, that kind of thing were not taken seriously. There were violent issues on campuses and people were not safe in their dorms. I mean, there over the years, there have been safety, legitimate safety issues that were not dealt with well. And we definitely needed things like the Cleary Act and stuff that is helping people be actually safe on campus. But it does seem like the pendulum swungeth too far. And now it's like, oh, no, somebody said, um, you know, I don't know, free Palestine. And that is treated as an equal act of violence. Stand with your students. Stand with Palestine. As like something that would meet the definition of like a true threat or vandalism or, or some of these other policies that already address these issues on campus. So we have to look at each of these situations. Administrators have to administrate with a level of common sense where it's like, you know, how serious is this issue? And sometimes, you know, the way the system is set up right now is they get a, you know, a quote unquote bias report in the Title IX office. They are launching a full scale investigation. Okay. So like a sexual assault. What what I'm hearing is that a lot of it comes down to administrators' common sense, that actually there's not that much you can do about how the codes are written because it's all in the execution. It's all in do the people who receive the reports exercise common sense or are there actual ways to write these rules best? What would be better is if they took out every rule that needlessly impacted 
the free speech that they promise to protect. Okay, so there are all these different policies that have impacts on free speech that are needless. So like, for example, there are already policies on the books that prohibit true threats or discriminatory harassment that meets um, the Supreme Court's Davis standard. That's the prevailing standard for discriminatory harassment in higher ed, vandalism. They have these policies on the books. When speech rises to the level of this kind of misconduct, it can already be punished under those policies. But what we have seen so much in the last, you know, 10, 20 years are all these other sort of sub policies that that ban basically like bias and offensive speech and bullying and it doesn't appropriately reference these other you know these other misconduct policies instead they just function as sort of their own entity and they really are used predominantly to chill speech so i would just remove all of those the Syllabus is a production of American Jewish University and InsideHigherEd.com. To learn more about InsideHigherEd.com, go to that very URL. To learn more about American Jewish University and its free online offerings, go to aju.edu open. That's aju.edu open. There are free classes and learning that await you. Are you getting some uh, blowback from some of the conservatives who, as of four months ago, really loved you now that you're defending uh, pro-Palestinian students who are saying free Palestine or from the river to the sea and and the conservatives uh, are wanting to get those students expelled or wanting to have their speech suppressed or wanting to have their student organizations banned? And you've come in in certain situations and said, actually, this doesn't really rise to the level of threatening to anyone. They're allowed to have their speech. And here you are defending students who's, who are coded as lefty students. Um, have any of your donors been upset with that? Have any of your supporters said, wait a second, that's not that's not why we love you guys? It's always hard to be the principled one in the room. Sometimes we feel like a little bit of the last man standing where it's like, no, when we say principled free speech advocacy, we mean even this time. You know, even now, have you gotten angry phone calls from supporters or donors who have said, wait a second, this this is not what we signed up for. We didn't sign up for principles. Fortunately, I do not have to field those phone calls. You know, every single person on our staff has had to, you know, run to the barricades and stand up for, you know, zealously for the free speech of someone saying something that they personally, you know, fire staff member finds incredibly offensive we that's our that's our like key interview question (laughs) that's like can you join fire this is not for everyone you know you are going to have to be defending people um sometimes publicly for saying stuff that you find abhorrent and that you hate but that's the gig um and so yeah it's there's definitely um people that are going but really this and and the answer is yes It's so interesting because it strikes me as so obvious, and maybe it's because I was raised by someone who does this kind of law, sort of. I mean, he does employment law, but he's he he he's in he does civil rights law broadly, and free speech was just kind of a given. I'm I'm intrigued at how poorly this kind of cardinal virtue of the of the American Constitution has has been inculcated in a lot of people. They don't really have any romance of it. They really just want to weaponize it uh, to defend the speech they like, and and they actually don't care that much when it's. Principles are—they're not really interested in principles. It seems to me most people. It must be a little dispiriting. 
it keeps me up at night and I have to turn to my toxic positivity and be like, it's going to be okay. I believe in the goodness of people. I believe that we're all going to be okay if we would just, you know, have a little charity toward our neighbor and start listening to each other. I mean, that's the, um, you know, that when people tell me like, well, there's other stuff in the world besides free speech. Why are you guys so focused on this free speech thing? And I'm like, well, that's the whole point. Are there are all kinds of things to care about in this world. And the way that we figure out a path forward for all of them is going to require us communicating with one another in a way that's really going to be effective. There is not some overarching administrator, at least not in the U.S. yet, uh, that they can run to when they have some problem and say, you know, throw this person in jail. This is not Turkey or China or Russia. This is America. And we talk through our problems here. We do not just punish people that say stuff that we don't like. And students need to figure this out in college like- or they are going to have a tough time. It's like I say to my kids when they ask me to climb up on a bench and get something from a top shelf or clean up a spill, I say, I don't have magical powers. I'm just going to do the same thing I'm at, that you could do. You could do it too. You know, I don't, I don't have magical – they think someone out there has the magical powers. OK. But to be fair, let's be fair. There is speech that crosses the line. For I'll give you an example that strikes me as one that crosses the line. Uh, people who are constantly in your face yelling so loudly that you literally can't think, right? It's a speech act. They're not punching you in the face, but it probably crosses the line into into harassment. People following you and screaming in your ear. At the far extremes, there are speech, speech acts we don't want and certainly threats, right? So I don't think that broad geopolitical statements constitute an individual personal threat, but an individual personal threat certainly constitutes an individual personal threat, right? And, and schools are probably right to say you can't make individual personal threats of physical violence. So neither one of us, I would imagine, is a 100 percent free speech absolutist at all times. Do you have a pithy way of saying when schools should step in and when they shouldn't? Well, their policies are, you know, the policies that track the law. So like if we're asking whether or not someone has, uh, you know, engaged in a true threat or discriminatory harassment, these schools, you know, if they're going to play judge and jury, they should use the legal standard. Um, And the legal standards are pretty clear if they are implemented in in the way they're intended and and you know not broadened when they're put into the school's policy manual but you know fire's not ever out there defending people who are engaged in true threats or you know that for example there was something at uh, cornell somewhat recently right after october 7th right. where a guy was engaged in a honest to goodness true threat you know he said i'm gonna come and shoot up the cafeteria and it was reasonably um you know he he suggested when it would be and where it would be such that it met the standard for a true threat and we said nothing you know that guy deserved to get arrested (laughs) um and so um the, the what we see more often however in terms of what we do defend would be um you know people saying Zionists must die in a sort of detached way from when, who exactly, you know, just this sort of like, you know, I don't know, the black diaspora should rise up against, you know, the West. That is not a true threat. A true threat requires a serious expression of an intent to commit unlawful violence, and it has to be you know, sufficiently targeted at someone or a group of people and just saying, quote unquote, Zionists or quote unquote, 
white people is not sufficiently targeted under the law. What I was going to say is it has always struck me that schools are in a lot of businesses they shouldn't be in. So, for example, the second they get into the housing and landlord business by running dormitories, all of a sudden they probably are incurring certain liabilities about are you running these buildings safely and, you know, in various ways, what are they up to code here? Do they have adequate, do they have blue blue phones or blue lights so people can call cops or whatever? But like if you weren't running dorms, if you just said to students, here's our school, go rent an apartment in town, the way I think a lot of European universities operate, you wouldn't have those problems. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in the question is, you know, where do schools have a duty? And of course, they do create more duties by getting their hands in different pots. You know, if they're going to run a football stadium where everybody they got to provide, you know, everybody there's got to be safe. If they're going to run dorms, they have to, you know, like you said, become landlords. And, you know, the Title IX space is really is really interesting because there are some federal, you know, there are certainly and I mentioned the Clery Act, er, Act earlier, but there are certain duties that universities have just by function of, you know, having a campus. When you invite people on a campus, you have to provide some level of safety. That said, some of these policies were getting so, um, you know, getting so far afield or we've had for, for a while, we had federal regulations that were being, um, sent to schools and they were so broadly worded that schools felt like, oh my God, my federal funding is going to be jeopardized if I'm not, you know, punishing a faculty member every time they get reported for, you know, having students read a, you know, racy excerpt in a literature class that is pedagogically relevant. People were like, you know, just punishing everything and feeling like they needed to report everything. Um, But again, if they have the proper policies in place that reflect the legal landscape of the state that they're in or of the federal regulations, in theory, it should be easy enough to separate the wheat from the chaff and figure out, you know, is this a serious situation or is this just, you know, somebody who said something in class that was off color? I mean, what happened here? And sometimes we see these administrators just dispatch completely with common sense and go, oh my God, this allegation is so crazy. Like they don't even really look at the facts in front of them and figure out, you know, oh, this is just nonsense or, oh, this student that reported this, you know, they need support in a different way, but we don't need to be cracking down on someone who just went off on Twitter and said something that's, you know, protected, but offensive. Mm -hmm. The one job I would not want in the world He's a college administrator. They have the hardest damn jobs out there. They have a thousand different jobs at once. But boy, if they just had uh, more streamlined policies and the practice of implementing them as written, they would make their lives so much simpler, I tell you. I want to conclude by looking at the current moment where there are a lot of charges and countercharges about free speech on campus, a lot of them having to do with the Israel-Hamas situation, some having to do with other things. I want you to talk to me about a legitimate crackdown on free speech, if you've seen one, or on student speech or student organizing or faculty speech or organizing, and then tell me about a case where FIRE has been concerned because of an illegitimate crackdown. Any situation where there is alleged violence at a protest, you know, there have been reports of, you know, chemical type attacks or people being pushed or followed, you know, in a threatening way around a protest like that violence is never acceptable. Violence, you know, is the opposite of everything 
that the First Amendment stands for. We also see often situations where, you know, maybe short of violence, disruptive protests. So someone is in a forum that is sort of a closed forum, like a speaking event, and the speaker has the floor and they are trying to express themselves, but we have people shouting them down and, you know, playing loud noises over them so that they can't speak. That is not okay. And colleges and universities need to take steps to make sure that, you know, people are safe at protests, that they're not being, um, you know, that they're not subject to violence. And that when people are trying to speak on campus in, you know, in an auditorium or somewhere where it's clear that they have, you know, they have the floor, schools need to step in and remove disruptive protesters. Protesters can protest contemporaneously, you know, outside, and they should be given space to do that. Um, where we have seen inappropriate crackdowns, particularly recently, are, you know, things have become so disruptive that schools have gone so far as to be like, we are banning all protest. <laughs> we are banning protest in any building, no protest. And we're going, well, what, even silent protest we've seen um, in some policies. And we're going, okay, well, you know, we see these things abused all the time. Does that mean if someone wears a Black Lives Matter shirt, is that silent protest? Well, we see people getting reported under these policies all the time. You know, what if somebody raises a contrarian opinion in class? Could that be construed as protest? When these policies are not well-defined, they're vague, they can sweep in a lot of speech that's unintended, and we are seeing universities react in this way. You know, I always think of, uh, you know, the Harry Potter fans, uh, Dolores Umbridge, you know, nailing all the things that are, uh, everything's illegal now. You can't meet and you can't talk about this and you can't, you know, you, we see universities going, okay, well, you can't do that now. And you can't do that now. And what we really need is college and university administrators saying like, let's find more ways to come together and avenues for us to talk this through in a way that's productive. We certainly can reserve classroom space and certain building space for the educational purpose. We don't need protesting around the clock. That is not conducive to the educational atmosphere. That said, it's clear to us as administrators that you all are passionate about this and our job should be to provide all the resources that we can in this special place, our college or university, to let you do that. The ability to experience discomfort is an essential part of the process of learning and building community. I work... <laughs> who would disagree with me on these and other issues. Our disagreement does not keep me from respecting them. It does not keep us from working together. And I would never ask anyone to censure their speech just because I disagree with it or because our disagreement makes me uncomfortable. When you talk to an undergraduate who wants more administration and more restriction on free speech, and you're just trying to move her to a place of loving free speech and realizing that it's actually great, that the upside is way bigger than the downside. What do you say? Oh, it's so hard. Um, you know, free speech is everyone's birthright. And I especially see people on, you know, on the left, you know, I happen to my set, my, my personal politics are, are left. And I see my fellow lefties being like free speech is a tool of the right to just, you know, spread white supremacy. And I'm going, no, you know, to the extent that any, any group says they own free speech, you know, free speech belongs to no one. It's all, it's our birthright. It's something that we should all hold dear, something that we should use as a tool to make the world 
you know, a better place as we see it. Uh, lots of lots of people who, you know, are being very vocal about wanting to clamp down on free speech are using their free speech rights to do it. <laughs> They're using their free speech rights, um, you know, to advocate for less of those rights. And so I just, you know, and you can look to, you know, the civil rights movement, gay rights movement, um, women's movement, so many important uh, social changes that people on the left really identify with have, have been so dependent on freedom of speech. And so, um, and also I like to point to other countries, like what they do to people who do free speech in China and what they do to people who do free speech in Russia. Like Americans tend to have this really insular view of like, you know, free speech is whatever it is in America. And no, like, look around, look at what it's like when you don't have free speech, uh, in, in your country. It's a really dim, future. So we don't want to go to that place. We want to use our free speech rights um, that so many generations before us have fought for, and that that can really be a tool to get the change that many of these folks are looking for. Alex Mori of FIRE, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. The Syllabus is produced by InsideHigherEd.com and American Jewish University at Inside Higher Ed. Doug Letterman is the, the main the main dude who helps facilitate the syllabus so that you can hear it every other week. And at American Jewish University is hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer. You can send complaints or praise to me at mark.oppenheimer at aju.edu. And you should know that I am backed up by a superb team that includes producer Alyssa Silva and editor Jonathan Kesselman, who's brand new to us. And if it sounded good this week, you have him to thank, as well as a staff that includes Sherry Hirely and Amelia Hamill. We are so grateful that you are listening. Please go rate and subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice and join us next time for The Syllabus.